Welcome to WFUV's What's What. It's Thursday, September 14th. What's What is a daily podcast that explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues in the New York Tri-State area. And includes features and interviews exclusively from WFUV. I'm Jay Doherty. And I'm Emma Murphy. And here are today's headlines. Negotiations between the United Auto Workers Union and Detroit's three automakers are at an impasse, and the union is bracing for a potential strike as early as midnight tonight. That's right, Emma. The union is currently asking for a 36% increase in worker salaries to help combat inflation. However, the auto companies are pushing back. They argue that a more expensive labor contract could eat into their planned investments in innovation. And they say higher wages would mean higher car prices for consumers. Union President Sean Fain has indicated there's still a chance that the nearly 150,000 UAW members could all go on strike. But it's more likely that they'll target a select few factories at each company. If an agreement isn't reached by tonight, Fain and other union leaders have made it clear that they'll cease negotiations with major automakers and join workers on the picket lines. This would be the first time in the union's 80-plus year history that it struck all three companies at once. So the union is issuing an ultimatum threatening to strike any company that hasn't reached an agreement by 11.59 p.m. tonight. Uber Eats and Grubhub may start having to supply certified e-bikes and batteries to some of their 60,000 drivers across the five boroughs. That's because of a new city council proposal that addresses an even bigger challenge facing New York, e-bike fires. In 2023 alone, fire officials have reported 175 e-bike-related fires, resulting in 14 deaths and nearly 100 injuries. You might be wondering how e-bike fires are linked to delivery drivers. Well, many delivery drivers are currently using uncertified bike batteries, which have a higher risk of exploding or catching fire. So the idea is that if the government mandates companies to supply drivers with certified bikes, there is a potential for streets to become safer. But this bill is likely to face intense opposition and possible legal challenges from delivery companies. They argue that the extra expense would be difficult for them to handle. Although companies like Grubhub and Uber have made donations to organizations promoting safe battery usage, it remains to be seen just how far the companies will go when they're put to the test by the New York City Council. This month, the WFUV Newsroom is highlighting the recent rise in book bans to explore the people being impacted and why these bans arise in the first place. John Green's Looking for Alaska, George Takei's They Called Us Enemies, and George M. Johnson's All Boys Aren't Blue are just some of the hundreds of books that have recently been banned in states across the country, even though they're all about very different things. This week, I spoke with PEN America's Sabrina Baeta to learn more about banned books and free expression. Sabrina, could you start by telling us about PEN America and its mission in the context of free expression and combating censorship? PEN America is a literary nonprofit. Um, it stands at the intersection between free expression and human rights. So in terms of looking at free expression in the United States, we're looking at any kind of censorship um, of stories in a lot of different media forms. For me specifically, we're looking at censorship of K-12 through public schools, and right now, largely, that looks like book bans. A study from PEN America says that last year, over 2,600 books were banned. And given all your expertise in censorship, I want to ask a very simple question. What sets these roughly 2,600 books apart from the 4 million books that were published that year? There are some difficult topics in these books, and I think people have very emotional reactions at first to that. Um, I would say go read the books. Um, That would probably be my second tip. One, it's always just great to read a good book, and these are really wonderful, great books. 
But also go see what this is actually about. Read that content and figure out why that was available to a student. And um, and we'll always find 10 out of 10 times that that book is really important to at least one student. So I would say go engage with your local community and then go read a good book. So it seems to me that often discussions about banned books can overlap with talks about democracy and representation, especially in the context of public schools. So currently, who has the final say over what can be put on a classroom bookshelf, and who do you think should have the final say? Book bans as an issue is a hot topic right now, um, and rightfully so, just because we're seeing a lot of censorship in K-12 through schools, uh, what we, we like to consider the ed scare. But this process of collections and uh, gathering books together, either in school um, libraries or in classroom libraries, is obviously something that's been happening uh, for decades. There are, you know, certain parameters and the collections um, are cultivated by expert librarians who many times have master's degree in library sciences, um, understand pedagogically what students need access to, um, and have that first pass at what is available to students. The difference here is that we're seeing these large groups of people who are coming in and want to dictate what is available to a wide swath of students, an entire school, an entire district, an entire state. And we're also seeing state interference. And that is really where the censorship, um, the censorship is always an issue, but why we're seeing this as a large movement rather just individual instigators is because this is happening on a huge scale and affecting all students. So, like you said, there's a group of people who want to apply a controversial set of rules that impact large groups of students. What else makes this movement unique? Absolutely. And it's the coordinated fashion of this movement that these are not individuals who became aware of certain books and want to remove them, but that these are organized groups. And then now we're starting to see state legislation um, that is making a huge sweeping impact um, in creating both very real systems of censorship, but also then fostering self-censorship and the chilling effect um, of censorship across schools. And finally, are there any success stories where communities or PEN America have rallied against book bans and the issues have actually been resolved in any way? There are tons of stories um, out there, uh, which is really uplifting. We hear a lot about the negative. And I will say there is this is a very coordinated movement but there are, we always like to say that wherever there are book bans, there are people fighting book bans. There's so many people on the ground who are fighting this movement and working really hard in their own local districts to be able to make sure that books are unbanned or that they remain on shelves and the students have access to the materials that they need. There's a study out there that says 70% of Americans are against book bans. It's distinctly un-American to ban a book. It's distinctly undemocratic to ban a book. The community really comes around and rallies against that. So we've seen a lot of that. Unfortunately, like I said, this is a very coordinated movement. So it requires kind of a constant attention being paid to this issue. But we've been really lucky to have a lot of wonderful partners on the ground who are doing this work every day. That was my co-host Jay Doherty in a conversation with PEN America's Sabrina Baeta about banned books and free expression. More kids in New York City will likely learn how to swim. Lawmakers are expected to pass a bill today that would mandate the city to provide swimming lessons for all New York City second graders. Only 6,000 kids learned how to swim this year through the Parks Department, but this new legislation could up that number to 70,000. Supporters of the initiative hope it could greatly reduce drownings. This year, three teens died at beaches in the city, and 58 people have drowned since 2008. The swimming lessons would be free and optional to all second grade students in the New York City school system. 
you might start seeing a new look for New York City trash bins. City officials announced they'll slowly start replacing over 22,000 old bins as part of New York's effort to combat rodents. The current trash cans have been in place since 2002 and have holes that allow rats and mice to easily get inside. The new bins will have a concrete base, a hinged lid, and a removable basket to empty. The city will start by replacing 300 bins, but says there are a thousand more on the way. And on this day in 1955, Little Richard recorded his iconic record, Tutti Frutti. The song was Little Richard's first major hit, and it launched his career into the mainstream. What you may not know is the song almost never existed. Richard reportedly riffed the melody and lyrics for Tutti Frutti on a piano during his lunch at a restaurant in New Orleans. And after that performance, the singer went back into the studio to record. But there were some concerns before Tutti Frutti could be distributed. Music execs made Richard censor the song because its original lyrics were considered way too vulgar for radio. So after some lyric changes, Little Richard went on to sell 3 million copies of the song in the next decade and his radical appearance and sound are credited for laying the groundwork for artists like Prince and Michael Jackson. And that's our show for today. But check back with us tomorrow around 3 o'clock for more news, music, culture, and sports. And as always, you can find more from us at WFUVnews.org or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Jay Doherty. And I'm Emma Murphy. And that's What's What.